This podcast discusses difficult topics that may not be appropriate for all listeners. We are not doctors or therapists. None of our content should be construed as medical advice, nor as a substitute for professional help. Names and other specific identifying details are often changed for the privacy and protection of our guests. Our guests' experiences are shared as they experienced them. Opinions may not reflect the opinions of Beck and Ella or this podcast. There will also be adult language used. Lots of it. Listener discretion strongly advised. All right. So welcome back to Narcissist Gaslighters and Shaders. Oh, my. I am Beck. And I am Ella. We are back today with our next part of Amanda's story. So um, we are so excited to hear the rest of this. Uh, we were talking about it today and like how what an amazing journey it's been and how Amanda talks about it so eloquently that I know everyone is really anxiously awaiting this next part as we are. So with that, Amanda, thank you again for joining us and we'll jump right in. Hand it over to you. Perfect. Thank you guys for having me again. I really appreciate you. It's like taking an emotional shit on the show to some degree. <laughs> that is a nice relief for really relieving last week good it was one of those kind of shits so thank you for that <laughs> I, I should say too if, if you didn't listen to last week's episode please go back and listen there's a whole lot of backstory that brings us up to where we are in um, amanda's life so if you have not listened please go back and listen before you listen to this one absolutely or it will make no sense. So yes, absolutely. Exactly. You'll pick up and you'll be like, what's happening? It'll be real lost. <laughs> exactly. This girl story makes no sense. So, and you know, I put a lot of personal stuff out there. So I really hope that someone out there gets some sort of assistance from it. Because I do feel embarrassed talking about some of the stuff, especially coming up. So I just want to say, you know, I hope it helps somebody. There is not anything for you to be embarrassed of in this story. Absolutely not. Mm -mm. I cannot say that same thing for some of the other, the other people in your story. Exactly. That's true. You personally, this is none of your embarrassment. Exactly. And I know it's easy to say that and it feels different, but just know that we don't feel that way. And anybody listening is not going to feel that way for you. They're going to feel that way toward other people in your story. Yeah. Very true. <laughs> Very true. It feels weird when you're that person that it's about. So. Right. Yeah. Just to refresh, part one, we ended kind of like I was going to juvenile hall and I'd been going to court. I'd been kept in that man's house um, and the state had taken custody of me at that point. So that's kind of where we had left off. And I got out of juvenile hall and I was placed in the same treatment center my mom had put me in for 30 days. And so she had sent me there and then they sent me back and I was there for 90 days this time. Um, and during that time, I kept pleading with them like, what's the case with this old man? Like, is someone going to press charges against him? Because I would have visits with my caseworker and I'd be like, hey guys, is anyone going to do anything about that? You know, um, but about a month or so after I got placed into state's custody, I started feeling really bad. I was like cramping, I was flooding and I couldn't sit still in group. You know, every every day at these places you go to group you know there are little sessions you go to throughout the day um they kept putting me in a padded room it's called timeout because i wasn't listening i wasn't sitting still um and one morning i couldn't get up i didn't like follow the rules and get ready and go to morning therapy and the counselor came into my room and like angrily jerked the blanket off of me and he found me in a pile of blood and i was like crying i was in agony so they like helped me clean up and took me to a gynecologist and i was like barely 12 at this point and I was just like so scared I'd never been to a gynecologist before but a male counselor took me there and left me there and after the testing which was like really really painful 
they left me in the room for a long time and I just kind of laid there and the lights went off and I panicked and ran into the room and was like, Hey guys, there's a person in this room here. And the nurse was like, Oh, we forgot about you. Oh my God. And they were like waiting for the wall back, but they had forgotten I was in the room and the doctor like hurriedly into the room and he's like, Hey, you have gonorrhea, chlamydia, trichomonas, and that's all developed into PID. And that means it's like burnt your insides basically at this point. And that can mean you can never get pregnant. So we're going to send you with some pills. It'll all clear up. And he just got up and left. So. Oh, my God. Goodness. What is wrong with adults? I know, right? Just like, hey, by the way, here's some some stuff. I think he really was looking down on me, honestly. Yeah. He thought he didn't know the story, the backstory of how this is. He's judging you. He's being very judgy. But honestly, the story doesn't matter. You're a child. Right. The story matters. But like, you're a child. Like, there is something wrong happening by someone else that is not a child. Right. If a child comes in in that situation. Exactly. It, regardless of even if that was all your idea, it doesn't even matter. You're a kid. You don't get, you don't have the ability to make those choices. Like, there is something yep. illegal and wrong happening. It's not the child's fault. Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes me mad. And then they never took me to the doctor. You know, as many times as I said something, they would never take me to the doctor. So it would never have right. escalated that terrible if if they had just taken me to the doctor, like I said, like 30 times. So, but he like wheels me back to the facility and I'm like ugly crying in the wheelchair. I knew he didn't give a shit about me, but he like mm-hmm. wheels me back to the facility. I was on the medical side. They took me back to the mental health facility, basically. And I knew he didn't care about me. I knew I was just like totally alone. And my first thought was like, they can test that guy and he'll have the same exact diseases as me. And because that matches up, that's like evidence, you know? Right. But no, no one ever addressed it. No one ever dealt with that particular situation. So, Mm. but the counselors definitely told the kids as soon as they got back because the whole joke started that night Mm -hmm. and like it was co-ed. So dudes started pulling their dicks out in front of me because I was a hoe. Oh my God. And you know, I took all the pills. I got better. And that began my journey of really being heavily med- med- medicated. You know, they put me on Prozac, lithium, Pamelor, Paxil. I could go on for days of all the medications that they put me on. And I, I won't say medications are bad. They're they're good for the right people and for the right reasons, absolutely. But I, I didn't have a chemical imbalance. I just was a victim of circumstance. You know, that's all mm-hmm. it was. Right. But I walked around like a, an emotional zombie or emotionless zombie. I would, you know, someone could tell me someone died and I wouldn't cry, but... It could be cold outside and I would cry. You know, I was just a zombie for a long time. Mm-hmm. They put me in intensive therapy, which I really never gained anything from. I was just like a job for people, you know. Um, most of the interactions were the equivalent of paid babysitters who themselves needed therapy. So most of the placements I were, was in, it was just like babysitters. But my mom came like a visit to visit me like a month or so after that doctor's visit. And um, she said, I heard you have herpes or general warts or something. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I didn't have anything. It wasn't curable. But she just busted in with that. But I imagine she had like told every person that would listen that I had some scary disease and warned them to be careful around me. Um, she like really thrived on that type of gossip. So like you're the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she only wanted one or one relationship. So anything she could tell other people about you that would turn them against you was a good thing to her. So she wanted to shut the door on, on all those other relationships. And she wanted my sisters and I to like hate each other too. And for everyone to shut us out. So she could just have us to herself and them to herself. That's what narcissists do. Mm-hmm. So, but I have aunts, uncles, cousins. I, I don't know them and I can't know them because she tainted the well for, you know, skewed their opinions of me and my sister. So we just literally never had a chance. But, but she had a way of making like an ugly statement 
you know, hadn't seen her in months. I was living with strangers. So like a familiar face comes in the door. I was so excited. I was like craving seeing a familiar face. And the first thing she said was, you've got genital warts or herpes or something. So usually it was, God, you've gotten so fat. That was the most common thing that she would say. So can you imagine saying something like that to your child? No, not, no. I, I would, I never, I, 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 I don't understand it. I try to think of intelligent compliment. Right. Like, you know, I'm a mom of a daughter, so I try to be like, I'm not going to just say how beautiful you look. I want to make sure and compliment your insides as much as possible. And I really think about what I say yeah. to my children. So she didn't. So that's not who she was. That becomes the voice in your head. Mm -hmm. yeah. Your parents' voice becomes what they hear in their head when they're older and when they're thinking about if they should take a risk or try something new they hear that parent in their hat head telling them mm -hmm. either yes you can do it go for it or you're stupid and you shouldn't and you're gonna fail it's just so sad and you end up with imposter syndrome yeah yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> and i deal with a lot of self-loathing and things like that it's a battle for me in my own head to not mm -hmm. think really negative thoughts about myself a lot so it's it's a battle I struggle with every single day. I, I haven't gotten past that, but I do. I think I have better days, more more good days than bad days. I should say with with that mindset. But good because you're amazing. Yeah, and all the ways. Oh, you're too kind. Oh, you're too kind. But when I was held in that man's house, you know, I'd stare out the window all the time, and I I remember I saw my mom's car driving by. I kept seeing her. I could see her in the seat. You know, maybe I, I wanted to see it, but. I kept seeing her driving around and I thought she was looking for me. So like one of those visits, I told her, I was like, when I was held in that man's house, I, I saw you through the window. I saw that you were looking for me. And she was like, I never looked for you. I went to work. What are you talking about? You thought I was driving around looking for you. And I'm like, why didn't she just lie? Right. She could have just said, there's no reason. I was looking for you, but no, she was, she laughed at me <laughs> that I would even consider that she would have been looking for me. And it's just like a loneliness that I can't describe. I like literally had no one. And I was alone as alone can be. And like that placement was a one room place. So when I went to my room every single night, I, I felt how huge the universe was and like how small I was, how insignificant I was. And I would have like reoccurring lucid dreams that I could fly. And I would fly out of the facility's window and I would fly to my family's windows and look in and I would see them having fun without me. And I mean, I had that dream for years and years and years. I would just wake up crying. You know, I was just so young, but I, I just, I thought they were having so much fun without me. But this is kind of where my memory just goes cloudy. And maybe it's all the medications. It's like really hard to remember what placement I went to when, because I went to so many. Well, trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it just moved a lot. It'd be like eight times a year sometimes. So, <laughs> but Tennessee Christian Medical Center, Clarksville Diagnostic Center, Good Luck Medical Center, v Vanderbilt's Children's Emotional Recovery Program, Serendipity House, place called Cherrywood. It's like a group home. And I was there twice in one year increments. I spent like the end of seventh grade and the ninth grade there. They sent me to Bradford in Alabama for 16 months when they couldn't find a placement in Tennessee. And that's kind of where I decided to be disgusting. And I gained up to 300 pounds and shaved my head. And I wanted to be so gross that no one would ever hit on me. So I didn't shave my legs for like two years. And that was a 90-day program. So and I was there for 16 months. So I watched people graduate over and over and over. So all these places I would see people come and go. I have so many names floating in my head and faces floating in my head of traumatized children that I've met throughout my life. And, and how, how could nobody just see that it's just trauma? Like you, you're having trauma responses and you need a trauma therapist, not a 
group home. It's not like that. They don't really think about your needs. They think about where can you stay right now? Where's the next place that this person is going to sleep? Mm-hmm. It's just a business, really. It's it's a really a business. That's all it is. They don't think about the child at all. Terrific. Mm-hmm. And I slept at the DHS office. Like if they couldn't find a place, I would just sleep on the floor there. And then I had two foster homes. So I went to a black lady named Miss Cosby. I joined African Methodist Episcopal Church while I was there. I had some experiences with lots of different cultures and but that place went horribly when she accused me of stealing her son's gun which I didn't and I would, I would never I don't like guns I would never touch a gun but I didn't and I have no idea what happened to it you have a gun can you have a gun in your house when you have a foster child mm. she was a, a, a it's called a um, therapeutic foster home when you're the only foster kid but her son was in foster care she had a son who had gone to foster care and then her adult kids lived there too what? how it it was not therapeutic in any shape form or fashion so i don't understand so we don't we don't trust you with your own kid but we'll give you this but we're gonna go ahead and give you someone else's because you've got an open space there now that we've taken your child i can't even admit that in my brain what doesn't make any it makes sense zero sense what the fuck is wrong i don't there wasn't much thought processes there oh God, I'm so sorry. What the fuck is wrong with our system? It'll get way better. She was actually great comparatively. I'm telling you, like, she was decent for a minute. But I, I was so embarrassed about her accusing me of stealing the gun. I tried to kill myself. She had, like, nitroglycerin and a bunch of stuff in the house, Matt. Almost was successful in trying to kill myself. So I was in a coma for three days. And when I woke up, I was in Vanderbilt's child ICU. And there was a woman rocking back and forth. Her baby was born with his brain on the outside of its skull. And she looked at me and was like, tell me how beautiful my baby is. And I thought I woke up in hell. I thought I was dead. And that was hell. Yeah. That was weird. And I woke up in a totally different hospital. Like the Twilight Zone. Yes. Like literally it was. Why was she in there with you? Oh, because I was in hell. I see you. Gotcha. How scary. That is frightening. So it's so weird. And I was in different clothes in a different part of town. It was very weird and then like some ladies bathed me that was so weird it was literally like I was in hell I don't know that was the weirdest thing but then when I was about 16 they put me in a foster home she was 500 pounds and she used to to shave her legs and comb the psoriasis scabs out of her scalp and she lived like either even further in the country than my dad did in that same sort of area so I went to high school with all the friends I knew from kindergarten and I used the friend term the term friend loosely but Again, I'm like the laughingstock. My foster mom's waddling to enroll me in school and have all these new foster sisters. And I just felt like an alien coming back into that world. You know, like my foster mom like screamed at us a lot, treated us like shit. And I reported her to DHS and I, DHS is Department of Human Services. I know it's different in every state, but but I ended up in a homeless shelter for kids in Lebanon, Tennessee. It's Wilson County Youth Emergency Shelter. And I was there twice. The first time I ran away and the second time I spent almost a year and that's where I aged out and turned 18. I was in that homeless shelter. So every program had a family week. It's like a part of the flow, you know, work on the kid, involve the parents, heal the wounds, and then like reunite families. But my parents ignored the invitations or made excuses, like held me up from leaving places until they finally like excused me from it. And they would give me a mock family week. So I would use other people's parents or empty chairs or pillows it was embarrassing. I, I don't know any other kids except my husband that didn't have his parents come for family week. But I think they were afraid of what I'd say. You know, just they didn't want to risk public scrutiny. You know, what would I say in front of all these other people? 
it's like how do you possibly make a situation worse like this kid already doesn't have their family showing up for them so like how could we make it worse i know let's throw some empty chairs around her so she has feels even more alone one more physical representation of being alone mm -hmm. the absence yeah of the absence they love pillows hit the pillow tell them how you feel well like put a picture draw a picture of them and pin it to the pillow you know it was really healing so no. <laughs> That's horrible. Well, I know. Sarcasm. What is wrong with adults in the system? It's just, I mean, the fact that the words child homeless shelter even exist and like that's a place is just horrible. Mm -hmm. That was my best placement. Truly, that homeless shelter was the best place I was in. So I wouldn't change a thing, honestly. They are amazing. Yeah. That's why I said their name so loud because they did an amazing job with what they had resource-wise. So I have to say, I five to them. I hope they're still out there doing it. Good. Yeah. But the foster mom I was talking about, the, uh, I call her my 500-pound foster mom, but her name is Jeanette. And she, like, confronted me for reporting her. She picked me up from night GED class, like, screaming at me as she drove down the road, like, almost wrecked multiple times. I really thought she was going to kill me, which I also reported to DHS. But she didn't like us to go to school because she had to have help around the house, and we were entertainment. So she couldn't move around a lot with her weight, so she'd get bored. So she stole a, a doctor's excuse pad from our gynecologist and told the school I had cancer so I could stay home to play cards with her a lot. She did the same thing to another girl. But she smelled like pee all the time. It was, like, really hard to be near her. And the gynecologist that she took us to very regularly used an inter internal ultrasound on me yeah. and all the other girls every single time we went alone without nurses. And he stood too close to us and always pressed against us. And I saw him on the news, like, 10 years later, and some girls had finally reported him. Um, but he would tell me I had ailments that no doctor, doctors have ever found. So that's the other thing that happened there. But that's where she got the doctor's excuse pad. But the first day I moved in, I had to help them hide a lawnmower in the woods so she could commit insurance fraud. And she got her checks like once a month for us. So she usually spent it all in one day and would go buy like bulk groceries. She'd bulk buy all the kids' cigarettes and then she'd go to bingo. She'd lie and say I was 18 and then spend like the whole check on the equivalent of scratch-offs. And at the bingo hall, they're called pull tabs. She'd like be sitting at a mountain of them, like surrounded by them. And if she won, she would spend it all. And if she won, we were like, good luck. And life was good. And if she lost, we were fucking putts, bad luck jinxes. Like it was wrath was coming down. Right. And the first day before we moved the lawnmower, we went to the laundromat. So I told her jokingly, like, I could play connect the dots on your freckles. Because I always like to use humor to try to make people like me. And she was like, how about you connect the dots on my twat? Just to give an like, example of how she spoke to us, she was like from the Bronx, New York. She was an ex-cop. She had married a truck driver from Tennessee. He drove a semi-truck with like a big, huge rebel flag on the front of it. He was also 500 pounds. He came home once a month to bathe, eat, have us wash his clothes, and shave his head. And he would leave. And Jeanette and John barked orders from their chairs. We were slaves. And when you got there, you're scum until you earn our kindness, if you can call it that. Like, I moved into a room with two other girls who were both nine years old. And they, we shared the same bed. And one of them had a lot of trauma, and she wet the bed every single night, so I woke up and pee every morning. And once I did enough chores and acted cool around the insurance guy, and I didn't snitch her out for doing things, she, like, felt me out, and I moved to the older girl's room. But even in that room, it was three girls in a bed. So if you have you guys ever seen the movie White Oleander? Mm -mm. Yes, but you would need to remind... It's the foster girl. She 
got moved around and got shot. She had the girl from Forrest Gump, Jenny and Forrest Gump was in it, and Michelle Pfeiffer. Anyway, you'll have to see it. It's very relatable to my life. I need to rewatch it. It's all about foster homes, and yeah, that was very accurate depiction. But I didn't have a consistent education. Like some places sent us to public schools, some had private teachers that taught us on site. It was very inconsistent. And then changing school sucks. Being a foster kid at school is like obvious. Everyone knows you're the girl that rides in that big van and nothing felt normal. But I technically have part of a 10th grade education. So that's as far as I really got in school. And through all of this, I got to see my dad a couple times. Like once he showed up, when I tried to kill myself, I was talking to a male therapist after I got out of the ICU when I tried to kill myself. So I had opened up to the doctor. And I was telling him about when my dad had climbed into the bed to tell me he was going to try to talk to my mom the next day and what my lie was supposed to be. And this was the first time I'd like talked to anyone about it since my mom had like labeled it as sexual abuse. Um, not that it needed to be exaggerated, but the, the counselor was asking about my life and why I tried to kill myself and I let myself open up. And then I look up and there stands my dad and his wife, the last stepmom at the door looking crazy with her teased upside ponytail. And she like started screaming and confronting me and calling me a liar. So I freaked out and ended up in a corner like shaking and hyperventilating and they were escorted off the premises. And then, and you could bet your ass I never told that story again. Right. But I didn't see him again until the ninth grade. I wrote him letters and explained myself. I went to my caseworker and demanded that they cleared up the dad's sexual abuse allegations. My mom had exaggerated the entire thing, just trying to get him locked up. And she was still sending my sister, the youngest, to visit my dad. So obviously she didn't hold much talk to those allegations either. But it's sad how hard I fought to prove myself worthy to be loved by my parents. Like I was fighting so hard for him to just love me because he was still so mad at me about that. But it was like a constant sprint in a hamster wheel. Like literally, it's how it always felt for me. Just I was running in a hamster wheel and getting nowhere. But he came to see me at the group home. I'd like spread him a few letters and it was a really sweet visit. And he was very positive and he was kind and he had stuck behind my stepmom's back to see me. And then I saw him at my grandma's funeral and he wasn't allowed to be nice to me in front of my last stepmom. I was at my fat foster mom's when I got the call from my caseworker that my mammy had died. And my, my older sister said she'd come pick me up for the funeral and she never showed up. So I sat on the front porch. I was like sobbing my eyes out. Mammy was my safe place. She was like the shiniest person in my life. She shined like so bright for me and for my sisters in a world of darkness. She must, she may not have like helped us, but she always really loved us, you know, and that was like something we didn't have a lot of. So yeah. finally my foster mom came outside and she like angrily told me, get the fuck up. I'm taking you. So she told me what an inconvenience it was the entire ride. She told me it was hot and I had exactly 10 minutes to go inside. I sat alone in the funeral and I boldly walked up to go see my mammy and she looked weird and I hated her makeup. But I gave her a letter and I turned around and I just saw my whole family on my dad's side just staring at me with uncaring eyes. I didn't like belong there. So I sat down like towards the back and my brother Daniel leaned up and touched my shoulder and it made me loud sob. So I just ran outside and got in the van and left. And Jeanette said, you made me drive all this way for that? Uh, what a sociopath. I ruined her whole day. Oh, she's awful. She's a bad person. Yeah, but the next time I saw my dad, I was 18. So I didn't see him until, until then. But I came back to live with my mom twice. During all this, she like visited sporadically at first, like a couple times a year. I did really good and graduated from a program. I went home for about a month one time and for about two months another time. So I had a good amount of savings from working while in foster care. My mom would guilt me out of my money and send me back. She'd send me back over some frivolous thing. Now, it took years for me to figure out that the youngest sister was manipulating me and lying to my mom to ensure she was an only child. 
She later went on to tell the lie that my life story was her life story, where we used to work. She told everyone there that my life story was hers, and I had to find that out through other people. But she damaged my childhood in a lot of ways, you know, but all the while making me think we were super close. I mean, she's like the best liar I've ever known. I didn't figure her out until I was about 25 years old, but I fell for her manipulation time and time again. And my sister, Sarah, also went into foster care. And mom blamed me for making foster care look so cool or like dating black guys so cool. So mom went on for decades about how in foster care, I got a $600 clothing allotment each year. So Sarah got locked up to be like me. And by the way, you need that money because people steal your stuff all the time. Like I never had anything, but I didn't glamorize foster care. And it's fucked up to blame me for my mistakes and Sarah's mistakes too. I was just like a little fucked up kid, Mm -hmm. you know, but Sarah would run away a lot and she got locked up. She made it all the way to Arkansas one time, but she had a really hard time. I honestly didn't like remember how bad she had it until she read this story and reminded me of some of the other things she had went through and truly how awful her dad and mom were to her. You think my story's bad. Her story's worse. It's it's worse. Like, I would say her life was way harder than mine. Like, to flash back to when my parents got divorced, my dad tried to get us girls to tell the courts who we wanted to live with. He wanted us to live with him. And me and the youngest agreed. We are like, yeah, we want to live with you because you don't say you don't want to live with him and get him pissed off. So... But Sarah didn't. Sarah angered him. She said, I don't want to live with you. And from that moment on, she felt him cut her off. And she reminded me of a couple other things. Like when my dad did break into the projects, I didn't realize, I I didn't remember until she told me. She kidnapped me and the youngest, um, but did not take Sarah. And that solidified in her mind that he hated her. Like how fucked up is that? My dad doesn't love me because he didn't kidnap me too. You know, she got beaten until she peed on herself, too, because she wouldn't carry on wood for my mammy because she was too afraid of the dark. My mammy never told on us again for not bringing in the wood after she got beat that night, but everyone singled her out. She probably was slightly autistic or had ADHD, but their solution was don't let her eat chocolate. That was that was their solution to help her. So every Easter and every holiday, she got different candy than we did. It was just weird how they treated her. They like expected so much from me and nothing from her. Like I don't know what's worse. There's a term for that. I want to say it's like it has the name Cinderella in it, but it's like where a family singles out one child, and like for whatever reason, and that child gets singled out forever as like the least favorite and it's very similar i read about it at some point and i can't think of the name now but it's very sad it is i mean i I was in my own shoes so when you walk in your own shoes sometimes you don't see it from someone else's perspective especially as a child so right it's taken me being an adult and really writing the story and asking sarah permission to talk about things for her to point out her side of it for me to start to see it from her perspective so there were a few tears shed over this you know talking about it with her but but hearing her talk about her perspective like like literally ripped my heart out but I would hear stories through my caseworker of like what's happening with with Sarah what her shenanigans her little mishaps and issues at different facilities we had the same caseworker so when she'd come and see me she'd tell me what was going on with her and I got to see Sarah one time once I went into foster care she came to visit my 500 pound foster homes uh, foster home she stayed overnight she was waiting for another facility to open up my foster mom and the caseworker was like, are you okay with it? And I was like, hell yeah. Like, I was so excited to see her. They pulled up, and as soon as they did, it came a downpour. And I was standing at the door just counting down to get to see her. At, you know, I was 16 or so at this point. And then finally she came running in. I was, like, so excited to spend that night with her. And I, I gave her some cute underwear and made me feel like a big sister. And I got to catch her up on things. 
And like my mammy was her saving grace when my dad mistreated her. And she spent most of her weekends with my dad. And when we were with my dad at Mammy's and, and Mammy had died and no one even told her. Mm-hmm. Um, so it had been several months since she passed away. So I had to tell her, you know, we cried together that night. Everyone was like so scared to tell her anything. Um, they hid a lot of things from her and I got left to break the bad news to her a lot about things. I had to call later on in life when my dad passed away. You know, no one else called her either. So, but my final placement, the homeless shelter for kids came after I'd been moved out of my foster mom's when she tried to kill me in the van. My mom's sister had said I could come and stay with her and I needed someone to talk to. So I had been calling her from a payphone at my night school. I was working full time and I'd always worked, always had a job. I got a job at a privately owned pizza place when I was 14. And when I moved, they would drive to pick me up if I was close enough and allowed to work. I took my driver's test in a delivery car that they bought for me to deliver in. And my mom's sister lived near that restaurant. So I worked days and took my GED classes at night. So I was like gone all the time. But I think my aunt regretted it instantly. She had met some dude on a 1-800 dating number and he had moved in. And I think she thought I was affecting her relationship when he saw me climb into the swimming pool. So 72 hours after I moved in with no warning, a caseworker showed up and said I was going to another placement. And that was the homeless shelter. And in retrospect, I'm so happy I went there instead of staying with her. It sounds weird because I was like literally desperate for family contact, but I made one of my best friends in the in the homeless shelter. So I have no regrets. It's so incredible to me to see how many people could fail a child. Mm-hmm. Like how many people, like how many points of contact were there where one person could have not failed a child and things changed and been so different, but how every single person fails like it mm-hmm. it makes me so angry for you but I always tell the story that you know every step that you take in your life even if it's in a big pile of turds you know like you needed to take that step right you know you needed to stop and clean off your shoe for a minute like you know if you didn't get held up in the elevator you know you could have been in that car accident you know there's just right right I wouldn't have met my husband if that hadn't happened so I know yeah it made me a better person a better parent but they did fail me. 100%. failed me and my sisters at every single turn. Like every adult. So I learned what not to do. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I went to the homeless shelter, they kind of knew I would be aging out there. My caseworker told them they weren't looking for active placement anymore. So I had a year to count down there. And I spent that time studying for my GED. And the counselors were like so kind and made it feel like a home as much as I, it can be with 20 kids in it. But it was amazing. I can see all their faces and they cooked for us every single night and they just, we got to be like normal kids there. So I, I have a lot, of, a lot of positive things to say there, but there was an evening counselor that worked there and everyone thought he was so cool. And he like played video games with the kids and everyone was so desperate to be his friend and I always do the opposite of everyone else. So I ignored him. But one of the girls in the facility was in line upstairs getting ready to walk down for dinner. And I heard her say that she had made a move on him and he rejected her. And she was pissed and going to lie and say he had tried to mess with her. And it just made me see red. Like, I didn't even like that guy, but that's fucked up. Like, so I just kicked her down the stairs and ran down and started wailing on her. I chased her outside and kicked her off the handicap ramp. And I don't condone violence. I'm not like a violent person. But that particular day, it just struck me wrong. Someone broke us up, and when they sat me down to find out why I beat her up, since that's out of character for me, I told them the truth. And then later that night, that counselor called me downstairs with another female counselor in the room and began to sob and was like, you saved my life, I'm going to school to be a teacher, and this would ruin my career. Like, as the day me and Maurice became 
friends. And he's this big giant football player from Western Kentucky. And we made like this weird, unlikely pair, but he was my true brother. Like the first man who showed me love and didn't want anything in return. He was just a very good person. That's awesome. Um, but I talked to my mom once that last two years on foster care. Well, I delivered her a pizza one time and she pretended that she didn't know me and shut the door. Yeah. Right. And I was at the homeless shelter. Yeah, I know. I know. She's lovely. But when I went to that homeless shelter, there was an obituary obituary of a girl who had the same name as me. Um, my mom called the facility and the whole place like tripped out. It's because no one called me. I didn't. There was like times each week you could call your family. I never made those phone calls. I just skipped it and gave someone else my time. But but she called and she got on the phone and she was like, oh, okay. Someone had told me your name was in an obituary. And I was like, well, I'm alive. And she was like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, bye. That was it. That was the whole conversation. So um, she, she just wanted to make sure I wasn't dead. But then I turned 18. I just had nowhere to go at that point. You know, I was, I was homeless. And But a church had donated me $124. They did that for all the foster kids, I guess. But I used to take my GED test the day after my um, 18th birthday. By the way, I aced it. Very nice. I got a scholarship because my score was so high. But Nice. But I moved into a halfway house for alcoholics, even though I had barely ever drank. But it was my only option. Once you're 18, you have to leave the property of the facility because it's insurance liability. So mm. I tried to join the military, and I was denied because I'd spent so much time in drug rehab since they had nowhere else to put me. Even though you never had a drug problem? I had never done drugs. I had wow. literally drunk a couple. I'd smoke some cigarettes and drink a little alcohol. You know, I was like 11 going on 12 when I got locked up, so I hadn't done anything. But three days after I moved into that halfway house, Maurice came to see me and we sat in the car and I told him my life story and he was like totally shocked and like appalled. He has such a beautiful family and this was like a foreign language to him, but he kept showing up time and time again for me through the next few years. He had um, got some of his friends, let me live there a couple of times, like other good people. You know, he introduced me to, to really nice people who I still speak to today, but, um, but I moved around and I was homeless most of the time after I turned 18. One night when I was homeless, I got up with the nerve to call my mom. It was like windy and freezing. My birthday's in December. So I'd been hanging out in the lobby of the Luby's cafeteria. There's a payphone out there. So I sat beside it trying to get the nerve up to ask for help. And I called my mom collect and she actually accepted it. And I told her, I'm like, I'm dirty. I'm on my period. It's freezing. I just need to like shower and wash my clothes. And she said, I hope things get better. And I hung up the Oh my God. I can't explain the loneliness of that feeling, you know? I just want to wash myself, please. That is terrible. But I heard I had a, a back pay disability check. My, my dad had gone on disability, and I turned 18 just in time for the state to not take that money. So I got brave and called him and was like, you know, I just wanted that money. But, it, like, as soon as I heard his voice, it, I just cracked. And I told him, I'm like, I'm in an unsafe place. The people I'm staying with are about to rob somebody. I didn't want to go. And he was like, just stay there and I'll come and get you. And he pulled down with this loud screaming belt and the dusty Bronco like echoing through the parking lot. And I saw him through the windshield and I like lost my breath because he was sick and he was old. And he had had his first heart attack when he was 33 when I was one and then had another in his 40s. And by the time I was 18, he had three heart attacks and a stroke and a quadruple bypass surgery. He couldn't walk more than a few feet without getting wounded. And he was like swollen with water weight due to enlarged heart. He was like very, very sick. He took water pills for his fluid, which constipated him. So he'd fall asleep on the toilet and fall off after eating a whole package of laxatives to be able to use the bathroom. And I would just hear a loud thump and I'd go back to help him up. But as awful as this sounds, these are like the best days of my life with my dad. Like we made amends with each other. I told him all the truths. 
and he sobbed to me and apologized for being a bad dad. And we woke up each day together and we pillaged around the house and we spent all our days together. We woke up and went and watched groundhogs eat apples in the front yard together. And it was a really wonderful time. But my stepmom hated me, but at least I had my dad and for a little while. And then Kevin was in jail through this time, so I didn't have to worry about my stepbrother messing with me or anything. But I finally got my back paycheck a few weeks later. I got $27,000. So my stepmom stole the check, forged my name, smoked it all in crack. She called my dad the whole time she was smoking up my money, telling him that she was fucking other dudes. And I was going to buy my dad a bed. Like, he couldn't even sleep on a bed. He sat on his knees at the end of a coffee table and leaned over the coffee table against an old couch cushion to be able to breathe. And his e elbows and knees were, like, totally calloused over. My dad had a heart attack while she was gone with my money. I stayed to watch the house when he went by ambulance. He had, like, tons of animals, horses, chickens. There's tons of animals, so I had to feed and care for them. I didn't have a car, so I couldn't even drive to go see him at the time. But I stayed there at the house in the boonies while he was hospitalized. And I kind of used that time to clean his property. I organized his friends, and we all got it cleaned up. Trash Mountain was gone. I sold a bunch of stuff he intended to sell and had like 700 bucks for him when he got out of the hospital. But his wife came back when she spent through the money. And I begged him not to take her back. But he told me he didn't want to die alone. So I left and moved in with my two older sisters on campus in Murfreesboro, MTSU, which was like a couple hours away. I still talked to my dad very regularly, but I just didn't want anything to do with my stepmom. So, but my sisters had separate camps, apartments on MTSU campus, and I helped with babysitting and tried to like figure out my life. Maurice was going to school at MTSU too, so we got to hang out regularly. He tried to get me to enroll and be a positive influence in my life, but I just... I had no clue what to do. I was just lost. Yeah. During that time, I got accused of a lot of things. Like, my dad accused me of running up a huge phone bill, which ended up being my stepmom using dial-up internet. So he had to apologize for that. And, you know, everybody accused me of stuff. Um, I don't know how being a foster kid makes you a thug or a thief, but, like, not being trusted is an awful feeling, especially when you didn't do anything to, like, warrant mistrust. Sure. I wanted to sit in my family's house, like, with my hands in my lap and never, like, be in the room alone. If they lost something, I stole it. And then they would find it and have to apologize. But being around family after foster care is pretty freaking weird. Like, you never feel like you did before. You feel like a stranger. You're scared to open the refrigerator. Mm -hmm. Scared to take a poop in your own family's houses. They tell stories that don't include you. And the stories without you really hurt. And you realize for like six years, life went on without you. They had fun. There are photos on the wall of fun times when you're away. And I still hold on to feelings of not being, like, belonging to this world. Mm -hmm. Maybe, like, a lingering foster care thing where you don't have a place to call home, like a wanderer, kind of. Yeah. But I stayed with my sister, Sheila, most of the time. And she ended up dropping out of college, and we moved to Nashville to, like, some apartments that look really nice in the daytime. But there's prostitutes everywhere when the sun went down. But my sister and her husband, whose dad was one of my dad's friends who kissed me for too long, drank all the time. They fought a lot. And uh, Maurice came to visit me, and my brother-in-law said racist things. So I moved out. He, he screamed, like, awful things at me in the middle of the apartment complex. But a girl who worked with me at Pizza Hut knew a guy who needed a roommate, so she had bought weed from him, and I went over and I moved in that night. His ex-girlfriend came over a few weeks later, and by now he and I were dating. She needed a place to stay and moved in with her new boyfriend. Her boyfriend and I talked the next day and found out that our lives were so similar. We had both been in foster care. He went when he was about 15. He was acting out after basically raising himself, and we had been to the same facilities, like even at the same time. We lived on the same road way out in the boonies where my stepdad had shot Molly. 
he was gone so long from his family. They were strangers to him too. And he had no one. We were like best friends, like after one conversation. And we kicked his girlfriend out eventually. And then we had legal issues. Um, we may or may not have been on the TV show Cops during this time. <laughs> uh oh. We were bad boys, bad boys. What's she gonna do? Yeah, that happened. That was a thing. <laughs> but we were really young and dumb. We thought we were like super cool. I'm surprised you weren't like a weekly guest on that show with the the raising that you had, you know, and like <laughs> so funny. I can't believe how well you've done without anybody to teach you those things, you know? Well, you're too kind. Uh <laughs> Well, the guy we moved in with was like selling and growing a little bit of weed. It wasn't like we were doing anything too crazy, but we thought we were cool and quickly found out we were not cool. But George and I professed our love to each other right before we were arrested for weed plants. And I left my ex. and They weren't even yours, right? They weren't mine. No, they weren't mine. And, you know, not having legal representation because you're poor and young and dumb, mm. we probably could have got it thrown out had we had some sort of legal representation, but we did not. Right. Well, and... I didn't realize until I met you and we became friends, like I never knew that when someone's in foster care and they turn 18, they get booted out. Like I did not know about the age out process. Yep. It had never occurred to me like how that works, but I thought that surely there's program, like surely they're preparing you before you're 18 of things like. Maybe it's changed. Like a transition program. You would think. Right. Maybe it's changed since the 90s. Like this is how you fill out a job application. This is how, because you would think as a foster kid, you would have access to some college programs or some. I heard that. Something. They don't just boot you out and not help you do any of that kind of stuff. You know, I heard that you college pay for, but I mean, I felt FAFSA. I've never seen a button that said, I used to be a foster kid, you know? like Right, right. Everyone would tell me that if you're a foster kid, your college is paid for, but that's not true. There's no way to do it. I went to the enrollment office multiple times and no one could tell me anything about that. And I just, but no, I mean, you're, even when you're there, you're not even allowed to look. They should be preparing you for yes. telling you those things. And like, there are caseworkers that should say like, here's all the things that could help you set yourself up for no. being an adult. Like it blows my mind that they would just boot you out at 18. You're a baby. Yep. Like with no skills and no idea how to adult. Mm -mm. I have no clue. Even there, the insurance liability, they can't let you cook when you're a foster kid because it's an insurance liability. So even teaching you how to like basic cook almost killed us when we got married. Oh my gosh. Like, oh my goodness. I cooked the turkey with stuff inside it and stuff like, yeah, I did so many horrible things. Like uh, it took me, we literally started from zero grounds negative digits really like and there was no youtube there was no no how do you cook a turkey no you can't google it no you figure it out that's all you can do so right Ugh. but we learned a lot we almost got food poisoning but we professed our love to get to each other right before we got arrested and i left my ex you know and then he and i were married a few months later so uh he got off work or i got off work third shift and i woke him up and i said do you want to go get married and he said sure <laughs> and it was the best 40 dollars we ever spent in our lives and we had some crystals afterwards it's been almost 26 years now march 10th so that's amazing great investment what are the odds you know for for two kids to come from never seeing a healthy relationship to being married 26 years and have an amazing relationship and two amazing kids that love and adore you and 
vice versa. BFFs are life, literally best friends. It's not like a facade, you know? Right. A lot of people have a facade that we don't. Yeah. I think the key there is that you had some common ground. Like you understood each other on a visceral level. Like, yes, it was meant to be. Everything came into place, and then you guys ended up in this yeah. facility and the universe just brought you together and knew that you t your two souls were matched the universe is like we've fucked you so much we're gonna go ahead and send you this one great big solid yes. yeah that's gonna last the rest of your life from here on out your life sucked okay your life sucked here you go <laughs> here's some happiness right you don't have to be alone anymore that was the big thing is I didn't. We didn't have to be alone anymore. Right. That's amazing. Family gave you a family. Just to know, like, our lives ran parallel this whole time. We like knew the same people. We knew the same stripper. Like he had hung out with her. I had lived with her for a little while. Like we knew everyone the same. Like it was the weirdest thing. And like his cousin had to steal a car in South Carolina, run away, find George, and then they wanted some free food. So they went to see this girl who had, he, who had a crush on him at McDonald's to get some free food. And that's his ex-girlfriend who moved in with us. And it's just madness. This path that we took, we're like weird. We're like twins. We do everything together. We don't even shower apart. Like I still get butterflies when he's on his way home from work. Aww, he's your twin flame. Yes, exactly. It's, it's a weird thing to say because that's kind of creepy, but like. We worked together at the same job for six years, commuted together. Every single day worked the same shifts, took the same shower, did everything together side by side for six years. He never got on my nerves. Like, that's that's a big deal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I can't explain it. We were meant for each other. For sure. Yeah. But six months after we got married, um, my dad had a massive heart attack and died. And I did get, he got to meet my dad and my dad loved him. And that was like so important for me that I made peace with my dad and he really loved George a lot. And it just... It was really important to me, but it was like the final time I saw so many of the people on that side of my story. Like even at the funeral, I sat on the friend side. You had so many stepkids from previous marriages. There was no state space for me on the family side. And although my dad did put th me through hell, we at least made peace as best we could. And he was a very fucked up person, but I got the best I could from him in that little short time. And I call myself lucky for that. Yeah. And my sister Sarah never got closure, so... At least I did get that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But when George and I got married, we literally had nothing. We walked to work each day for over a year. We didn't have a car or anything. We rode bikes to get groceries. A few months after we got married, we got custody of my youngest sister, Sarah. I was able to get her out of foster care basically because her foster mom didn't give a shit about anything except the money. So she just let us take her home with us. So it wasn't like legit custody. But um, we tried to help her for as long as we could. And we were just kids. And so was she. I had good intentions to help her, but not the maturity to handle it like I should. Right. She was young and finally free of foster care and just wanted to have fun. And But we parted ways and I lost track of her. And I know she had a really difficult time then. And I found out while talking to Sarah about what I could or couldn't say on this podcast, that what I thought had happened when she left our apartment was a huge lie by the youngest sister. And my youngest sister, like my mom, liked one-on-one -on -one friendship. So she would turn people against each other mm. so she could keep this all to herself. Mm -hmm. I'm working on 50 years old and I'm still uncovering lies about my life. So, but George and I gave away our worldly possessions as few there were and drove our first car we had just bought out of the state to South Carolina. Y2K was a couple weeks away. And in our naivety, we truly thought our whole life and criminal record would just be wiped out on 1231, 1999, but at midnight. <laughs> and that obviously did not happen. 
Right. <laughs> we had sold everything and we're going to live in tents and just go campsite to campsite. That was our plan at this point. Everything was coming to an end at, at, on the year 2000. So, <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> so we were told. Three months later, I was pregnant with my son. So, you know, I got pregnant right after this and I was like, yeah, I guess the hippie life is going to have to be put on hold for a little while. But and then two years later, we had our daughter. And like having card kids was like not in my cards at all. I told you when I had all those issues, I was told I'd never be able to have kids. Right. Becoming a parent's scary. Like, I didn't think I'd be good at it. I did not have good representation in that way throughout my life. So, and it was just me and George. Like, we didn't have any extended family to offer to little children. And you'd want to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want to with this bunch. I did try, and that's coming up, and I'm sorry, but we we did try because desperation is just a sad thing. But yeah, but he, my husband, removed gender roles from our relationship naturally from the beginning. Um, this is way before it was cool mm-hmm. to like remove gender roles in a relationship. He was way ahead of the game. Nice. He's always been an equal partner in raising the kids and in the household. That's amazing. We've both been stay-at-home parents at different times. He was always better at it than I am because he's much more regimented and I'm chaos. And I'm like, let's go have a picnic. Let's dig a hole in the yard. It's fine. You know, and (laughs) have a much more. You're more spontaneous. Yes. He's much more responsible in that way. So, but I'm like, I haven't done laundry in years. Like, I don't even know how to do laundry at my house because he does that. And for us, a healthy relationship means sometimes I give 60 and he gives 40 and sometimes he gives 70 and I give 30. Right. Um, mostly we're 50, 50, but we pick up each other's slack without judgment. Mm-hmm. I can already see how that's impacted our now grown son and daughter, what they expect from others and what they expect for themselves. That's great. Because of that. So, but back to the story, my mom kicked out the youngest, um, getting rid of another kid. So mom officially never finished raising any of her kids. And the youngest stayed with us for a bit in South Carolina and then came back to Tennessee since there was no work there. And the youngest fooled me time and time again. She started smoking crack, which kind of exacerbated her manipulation. Mm-hmm. She had a couple kids, so she could use those as weapons as well. And I fell into trap after trap. Sarah figured her out way before me. But over the next few years, I tried to help her again and again, always to my own dem- demise. I got to introduce my mom to um, my son when he was a few months old. When I was helping the youngest move to South Carolina, and her first words she said was, Oh my God, he's overweight and has a flat head. Have you talked to the doctor about that? That was the first word she said about my child. Oh, my God. George wouldn't let my mom's dear kids for a few years. I just grabbed them and left. I just grabbed them and didn't say a word. I just left. Good for you. You're a better person than me. But George wouldn't let my mom see the kids for a few years after that comment. Like, she, he was so pissed. Like, right? bitch, you don't know he almost died during delivery or he was oxygen deprived or his umbilical cord had a defect and he was malnourished. Like, she had the, a way of like using the most cutting, painful words. It's mm, awesome. Uh, but when our kids were like four and two, we reconnected with our parents just out of desperation for our kids to have grandparents, as sad as that sounds. And they met the kids and kind of realized we weren't the demons they had imagined us to be. It's like the absence of us allowed them to get creative with who we were as people, which was nowhere near accurate. My mom still made me earn her love, and now she had my husband to be her slave as well. She was a decent grandma for a while in our kids' eyes. You know, she, they thought she was a good grandma, but she would get mad at us for not doing enough for her, and she'd take it out on our kids. One Christmas, she bought our son and nephew a gift for three to five-year-olds, and they were 10, out of spite because she was mad at me, and that was kind of it. On our way home, my son and nephew both cried that their grandma didn't love them. <laughs> Mom always preferred girls, and which is weird. She's sweet. 
you know, I, I don't know. In this moment, she preferred girls, but she would buy the granddaughters like tons of gifts and then like one cheap gift for the boys. And she had a favorite grandchild, the youngest daughter, and she showered her in gifts. And my kids noticed because it was obvious. Mm -hmm. um, the youngest was a drug addict. So my mom overcompensated with that granddaughter. And there's a way to handle that that isn't so obvious. Um, the kids didn't understand why that kid got 20 toys and they got one. So she would buy more for my daughter than my son, too. And on that same car ride where my nephew and son cried about the gifts, my daughter cried because she felt like she wasn't allowed to be excited about what she did get, considering the boy's lack of gifts. So this is coming from like a seven or eight-year-old, you know. So I told my mom that she wasn't going to mind fuck my kids. And I saw the warning signs, and I haven't spoken to her since. And my sister Sarah cut her off as well. And it sounds petty, but there are so many other weird little things that she did. That was just kind of like the final thing. And that was about 13 years ago. So my mom was in my life for about six years total. It's not petty at all. That's not even a little bit petty because it's... No, but it feels that way. Like, she bought this Christmas present for my kid, but it's... No, because it's indicative of a far larger problem. There was a lot more meaning to that. Right. Mm -hmm. She has a message with everything that she does. So... Yeah. But I remember the first time when we tried to be mother-daughter, and we were living in that trailer park, and I didn't have a coat, and my mom showed up with this amazing winter coat for me. She'd found, like, this great deal for, like, $50. She took us out to eat a few times throughout the year, and we had a couple little shopping trips. Tax time came, and she pulled out a list and she had a tab for every penny she spent. I was so happy. My mom had like felt compelled to make sure I was warm and got me a coat, coat, but no, she had a shopping addiction and she wanted every cent back, even calculating our portion of the tab at restaurants. And my husband can attest the restaurants are not fun with this lady. She would shame me the entire time I ate. The waiter would walk up and she'd order for me like really quickly and say, her and I are going to share a burger. Number one, how the fuck do you share a bur burger? That's just number one. <laughs> number two, no. Excuse me, waiter. I'll order for myself. I'll have my own burger. Thank you very much. <laughs> and she would gasp like, oh my God, you can eat that whole thing? I'm like, maybe. Maybe I will, mom. Maybe I will eat the whole thing. Like, Maybe I'll eat two. <laughs> maybe I'll eat two. Like, right? But she could have just like bought me the coat. She, she, she had money. Like $50 for one kind gesture to your kid. And she did the same thing. She bought Sarah a coat too, a, a white one that was ruined in like two seconds and gave her a bill too. She never let herself earn the clout of a kind deed. Mm -hmm. She robbed herself every time because the asshole takes over and she can't control it. I struggled to get my birth certificate. Like I went through hell. And that year for my birthday, she gave me my original birth certificate. That was my whole gift. She had it the whole time and let me struggle for months to get the documents I needed to get my birth certificate. And I just gifted her like this elaborate birthday surprise, like meticulously chosen sweet gifts mm -hmm. that were out of my budget. Very thoughtful. And let me, let me just like, I forgot with my birth certificate, she had bought like this amazing perfume and it came with a free travel bottle and I always complimented her on it. In the card with my birth certificate, it was a piece of paper with some of the perfume sprayed on it that I could put in my underwear drawer. She couldn't share, like, the travel bottle. No. A piece of paper to scent my sock drawer. She wasn't poor. Like, this, she's just fucking mean. There are not enough words or hours for me to tell you the weird things that she did like that daily when she was in my life. There were two moments where she ever kind of apologized. She was a hypochondriac, and she worked to get disability for years, but she'd go to the ER to get shot up with something. And twice in drug-induced moments when I gave her a ride to the hospital, she asked me why I still loved her when she was such a horrible mother. That, that was as close as I ever heard to her admitting fault. Um, she never brought up this conversation sober, and if I tried to talk to her about our past together, she had a story for everything that paints herself as a victim, mm -hmm. but I know that she knows. You know, in those little moments when she was drugged and she said that, 
She knows. But the other side of our coin is my, coin is my husband's family. His dad was a musician and was on the road a lot when George was a kid. George was the youngest of three, so he got left alone at home a lot. Um, his dad would promise to pick him up from school or work, but would be extremely late or not show at all. I can attest to his dad being late um, when he promised to drive me to my dad's funeral and was almost two hours late. He made me late for my own dad's funeral. So oh my God. Um, his older siblings kind of got to enjoy parents, but George spent most of his childhood by himself. He started acting out in school and his parents signed him, signed him over to the state when he was 15. When we tried to get to know his dad, he always felt very fake with us, like a business transaction. He went through multiple wives and relationships and was a chronic cheater. He has his own new life with his wife. Um, he's been with for quite a while now. Olivia Newton-John and Garth Brooks were at his wedding. We literally have nothing in common with them. We haven't spoken in 15 years. His most recent wife and he adopted a kid from Russia right before that person sent a kid back to Russia on a plane alone. If you guys remember when that happened, it was many years ago. But anywho, they have a new life and we aren't in it. So they he didn't raise... His dad didn't raise him, sent him over the state, but then thought, I'll adopt. Some kid from Russia, yeah. What is some kid from Russia? Man, literally, I bought them a gift. I bought him a magnet doodle when they first adopted him. And his new wife said, I'm so glad that you got him a magnet doodle instead of like a book. Everyone keeps buying him books like, he can't read English. And I'm like, he's one. He can't read anything. What are you even talking about? Like, this is... Uh, you're supposed world. to read the books to him so he falls in love with language <laughs> <laughs> this is how it works for a toddler like what are you even talking about they're not for the kid to read themselves <laughs> <laughs> so it just tells you everything you need to know about this oh my goodness yeah ditzy person so she just walked around with her boobs hanging out all the time in front of us when we went to visit Lovely. which is great i was really proud of her body image but you know like yeah you know Anyway, but if it kind of felt like fake with our kids too, like that's weird when you have amazing kids that someone's being fake with them. So we kind of rather have nothing at all than that. And then George's mom left him when he was nine years old. So his dad raised him as much as a musician on tour can do. She would like pop in his life and then out and she'd buy him a dog. His dad wasn't allowed to have a dog at the place. So he had to get rid of it, bought him a water bed. So his dad had to deal with that. And she would just like bop in and spend money and leave. Um, his mom moved to some island and boats around island to island. I don't know much about her life. We've spent like a total of four or five hours with her since we got married. And his dad, we've spent a little bit more, maybe seven or eight, eight hours since we got married in the past 26 years. His siblings are not like us at all. And we've seen them in passing at best, like maybe a few times in 26 years. And for the record, not one of our parents has ever reached out to us. We've reached out to them. Um, but I could never fathom my kids disconnecting from me and me never trying to get in touch with them. Not a birthday card, right? a Christmas card, not a call, not a text, not a Facebook request. His family shows up as suggested friends for me all the time, so I know they show up for him. Like, right. you think we're like tweaker drug addict thieves or something, but we're not. Right. I just think we're such strangers, and it feels so weird to be around each other. And I think there's guilt. Yeah. But we haven't spoken to his mom in about 15 years either. We've reached out enough times if they wanted us in their life. They would have tried, and we refused to try. We aren't bitter. Right. We're old now. We don't need parents, but I know it hurts our kids, and that none of them even acknowledge that they exist. Even if they have made up reasons to hate us, what did our kids ever do to them? Mm -hmm. Right. But neither George or I have like any sort of support system. We've made it like 26 years off of like grit and luck and guts, and a couple of amazing friends who stepped in a couple of times. Cubex, who's 
been my friend since my kids were little and has always been a very bright light in my life. Um, so thank you for that. But I heard my mom was living in an RV alone with her pain pills on the property of the guy who drove by while my mom and dad were fighting in the car. And he yelled and said he was going to call the cops. Those friends were friends that stayed far enough away from my mom who didn't like see through her facade but apparently they figured her out too so i honestly don't know what she's doing these days she got her back pay disability check and shut herself in with her money and her pills and as far as i'm concerned she's just dead in my life so the last stepmom went on to steal her identities and commit fraud using my sister sarah's social security number wreaking havoc on her credit to this day the fbi got involved and she went to jail for a while her son kevin went to prison for robbing a bank my dad had the black and white bank photos on his refrigerator. Um, that's some redneck stuff right there. But he got out of jail on parole, got drunk, and was hit by a train and killed. Oh, my goodness. I never spoke to my sister, Ev, after my dad's funeral. She's legally changed her name now. Sheila was a drug addict for years and died in May of a brain aneurysm. My brother, Buddy, is on a different side of the political spectrum than myself, and we don't speak. Um, I told you he drives... Uh, a lawnmower to get alcohol after many DUIs, so that's where he's at in life. Um, Daniel from afar seems normalish and happy. I peek in on him on Facebook once in a while, but we haven't spoken in a decade and a half or more, so. Um, Sarah's doing really good, and we're still very close. She's my only real family, and I love the fuck out of her. She's had a hard life, but honestly, she's so fucking smart and deserves so much more than the world has let her have. I always had George. Um, she had no one. She was in a 13-year you know, abusive relationship and she's had a really hard time, but she's an amazing mom. She's super close with her kids and speaks fluent Spanish. Um, her kids are bilingual, which I think is just awesome. That's cool. Um, I haven't spoken to the youngest in years to protect myself. Um, a neighbor slash stepbrother who molested me behind the chicken pens. I looked him up on Google and found mug shots of him and it looks like he got in a battle with meth and meth one. Karma. Uh, Maurice and I stayed tight through the years. He had a key to pretty much every place we lived in. So if he needed something, I'd give him my last dime. And if I needed something, he'd give me his last nickel. It's almost been two years since they found him dead outside the school where he taught. Mm. He had a heart attack. He was an amazing person and a very special friend. His funeral was packed. Students from everywhere paid him tribute after 25 years of teaching. He really knew how to connect with the kids in an authentic way. And I really miss him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Every single person I worked with at, at that pizza place, the one who bought me a car to take my driver's test in, all passed away, all of them, within a year of each other. They had one medical condition or the next, and that business is closed. Mm -hmm. I don't have a single person I met in foster care that I continue speaking with. I like Facebook creeped on a couple. They have face tattoos or in jail, committed suicide, dead. I met so many kids moving as much as I did. I don't even remember half of their names. But it's so sad. It's so sad. I know, right? Just failed them. It's like they didn't even have a chance. No. You know, like there are so few people like you and George that will figure it out and go on to have a healthy, happy. Look at the statistics. Right. And it's like, it's not their fault. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's like 68% of kids that come out of foster care end up in jail, you know, within the first two years, and which I, we did do, but we did break the mold on that too. So we, um, we never even had a ticket since then or anything, like no, nothing since 1997. So, but a few years after I moved out of my 500 pound foster mom's home, she got in a car wreck and killed herself and three other foster kids. So she died as well. Three kids were in the morning. Yep. Remember I told you she tried to kill me in the car when she was driving erratically. 
she would always turn around and scream at us and the whole wheel would turn you know and she would turn oh my god she wrecked on the way back from florida and then finally one time one day it happened yep oh wow so and i, I complained to dhs and they kept her letter of kids so they just ignored it yeah wow the system is fucked. The other foster mom who accused me of the gun, you know, who's stealing the gun, I called her a couple months after I tried to kill myself to apologize for scaring her. And her daughter answered and said she died of a stroke and implied it was my fault because she was stressed about me. But she died about a month after I tried to kill myself. But as the person with the smallest circle, all these little losses feel so great. Like these loving torches or like even vague connections, like sp sparsely spread across the country or just like dimming one by one um, but about 11 years ago I had a massive heart attack I've struggled with weight problems my entire life and I don't have the best relationship with food but I was 33 when I had my first heart attack and my dad was 33 when he had his mm. definitely makes you feel like life is way too short so just like be happy as much as possible or as much as you can allow yourself for sure but with that in mind nine years ago we made the decision as a family to move out west always been a dream and we came to colorado and left everything in our lives behind we sold and gave away most of our worldly possessions again and we roughed it when we got here as a family but we've lifted ourselves up as a team george got hired at a local pizza place when we moved here and all the stars aligned for that job too the owner saw value in him and when our landlord sold our house he bought a house for our family to rent George and I ended up working there together for five years. Both our kids got their first jobs there, and we still live in that house and feel very lucky each day to have his support. He sold that pizza place, and we branched out to new jobs. But our circle may be small and definitely like 100% weirdo, but I feel so lucky. Like My kids are 23 and almost 21 now, and our son is soft, a soft and gentle soul. He's the best listener on the planet and always gives thoughtful advice. He's a gamer and a history buff, and... No one he works with would ever believe his hilarious antics because he seems so innocent. <laughs> he only shows that part to us. And her daughter's a million percent better version of myself. She's like an amazing communicator and stands up for what she feels she deserves. <laughs> she's a hobby jumper like me and she has style, which I know nothing about. And she's a thriftaholic and thrifts outfits that are all her own. Oh, cool. She's beautiful inside and out. And she's just a truly good person. Both our kids are just truly good, empathetic, and caring human beings feel so much pride listening to them talk yeah. even better than all of that is sibling friendship like us having no one pushed our kids closer together our son's autistic and as soon as our daughter heard about this she took it on herself to look out for him even though she is the youngest it's kind of like not like that or wasn't it's tables have turned now but if we didn't have her i don't know who how our son would have evolved into who he is they hang out all the time go to symphonies together and nerd out together all the time it's beautiful and it's my favorite thing in this entire world and i'm not saying their names because i never want my past attached to them i've kept them far 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 away from that side of my life our daughter's fiance lives with us and has for like a year and a half now so we've grown our circle by one i didn't know she was yep she's engaged for a year and a half so that's awesome you love him i do yeah. i do he's he became a part of the family the day he got here so she has an amazing taste so he's been a great addition to the family he's got an amazing family too so um but we do everything we love together we nerd out on star trek george and i secretly love little house on the prairie not that you couldn't tell with all my references <laughs> we love the teasiness of highway to heaven we might watch my it's weird that we are not religious but i love cheesy tv right don't make but mm -hmm. and we feed tons of birds and squirrels that's our hobby together i feed 
hundreds and hundreds of birds. I spend a lot of money on birds and feeding them every every day, <laughs> making sure they have water. Okay. Um, but I crochet almost every day, and I'm a part of a group called Random X, so kindness through crochet. Basically, I make stuff and give it away. Most recently, I gave a, about 50 crochet taco keychains. Um, something to look at and smile for people. We're currently making a teddy bear for a two-year-old. Um, but we cook amazing food together as a family. We live a very peaceful, boring life, which is exactly how I like it. I feel happy to say our kids have never heard us raise our voices at each other because we are lovers, not fighters. We don't argue ever. We evolve at the same rate. We like grew up together, started as low as someone can get with nothing. We came into our relationship with a couple of outfits and an Elmo alarm clock to go to work and we woke up every day to that's elmo's world um as we got it from sleeping on the floor and we were married for a year before we got a tv and two years before we got a car and now we live a comfortable life um, my husband's a butcher and shout out to him for his amazing promotion this week yeah awesome i work for at&t in service and sales and my kids work full-time and contribute to the household which is an understatement they like literally spoil us but we have a wonderful little team I don't want to suggest we're perfect. Far from it. I don't adult super well. We hobble along sometimes, and no one ever bought us a car or handed us anything. We just, right? We, what we have, we like earn right? through hard work. So, yeah. But I feel a lot of guilt that our kids are like cursed without an extended family. They're such amazing little humans. They deserve grandparents and like normal family connections. Um, another regret is not giving our kids like a normal upbringing. I had so much fear about them getting hurt that we really hid them away. I didn't want them to be abused. I wanted them to be like, sexually healthy people emotionally healthy people and they went into adulthood so we kind of hid them away a lot and we homeschooled them and i robbed them of the normalcy that we also lost like no prom or no high school plays but you got to pick your battles and now regret's really a waste of time and they've turned into amazing human beings but you know we always question ourselves as humans but i doubt they would do a single thing differently it's a hard battle yeah Ugh. It's a hard one. It is. It's hard to know what to do with your kitty. It's a gamble. You're like rolling the dice. Like, please, hopefully this is okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it sounds like you did a great job. So, I mean, what is normal anyway? Yeah. You know, you gave them your normal. Yeah. That's that's all that matters. And that's all you can do. All you can do is give them your love. Yeah. Yeah, 100% love and support. A million percent love and support. Love and support is so much better than... The most important thing is you protected them. Right. Yes. You know? Yes. They are emotionally you know healthy people and that means everything to me that's so important and that is beautiful yes and i meet kids that have gone to school and they're not like my kids but, you know like they're not all up in their phones all the time and you know right they're just different so in a good way but we became felons like pretty much instantly out of foster care what was it within a year um and just us being homeless ex-foster kids finding a place to stay and being dumb and sticking some seeds in some dirt it like haunted us career-wise stunted our financial growth in addition, having like no support system for kids who age out of foster care is truly criminal. Mm -hmm. They're asking kids to fail. So I always felt like we're at least a decade behind people our age. It took us quite a while to build ourselves a foundation. But at the beginning of my story, I said I struggle with farming relationships, and I really like thought deeply about this. And I realize now I do best at the beginning when I meet someone, I can get along great with them. But then I don't know how to keep the friendship going. Like I'm grateful for friends like Bex who forgive my social inadequacies. Um, I get more comfortable, like I got more comfortable with the starter relationships and the end of them. And I didn't really learn much about the middle. So it's something I'm working on and I'm a work in progress, like all of us. So absolutely, a lot of stories have like endings that say, here's a great solution. This is what I've learned. And mine is, it's okay to be fucked up. 
it's okay to be a work in progress. Yeah. The world pressures us to like follow some path and we feel wrong when we veer from it. The whole like graduate, go to college, get married, buy a house, have kids, save money. It's all BS. It wasn't in our cards. We did everything out of order and the order is a made up thing. Exactly. And it's okay to have a different path. It is. All humans can do is just play to your strengths. Be grateful for what you have. And I've met like kids with really, really disgusting travesties for life stories. Mine is tame compared to some of the kids that I've met. So as they say, it could always be worse. I don't like miss my family. I'm more in the empty slots where normal family members would go and the roles they could have played. Right. But I was gifted a beautiful love with my soulmate. I have beautiful children who add so much value to my life every day. My sister and her family, you know, have her and a handful of friends I adore. I had like a non-typical beginning. So of course mine is a non-typical but happy ending as it should be. Yeah. Not an ending. It's such a beautiful story. Like the the beginning is is hard and difficult and not beautiful, but it's like the results turns out to be such a beautiful life. And it's really amazing and an amazing testament to you and your tenacity and your love is amazing. I don't think about it. If I didn't have George, I don't think I would have made it where I did. So Well, there was a reason why you guys were brought together. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking about when you were saying it's hard to develop friendships or whatever. You've always been an amazing friend to me and totally molded how I became as a parent later on. Like I would not be the type of parent that I am if like that. This is before gentle parenting was like even a phrase like you were doing that and I had never been introduced to anything like that and I just thought I'm gonna have that relationship with my kids someday and hopefully I still do oh that's so sweet no I'm telling you it's hard those teenage years it gets hard and it yeah. can feel like you're getting distance and it's so scary when that happens but you come back together so you just be diligent like water on rock dude just relentless with your love and support that's Really, uh, my motto is I'm just relentless with it and I evolve as they need me to evolve. And parenting isn't 18 years. Parenting is forever mm -hmm. until the day they die. They can come to me and I will be there for them a million, trillion percent. And I will, I will write bad checks or I'll do whatever you need me to do to be there for you. Like literally, like I will never make them feel alone, like ever. Right. It's a, it's a really bad feeling to have no one. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of kids out there who have no one. To some degree, whenever we start talking about all these people could have interjected, I know that my sister's kids didn't have a great life. And I didn't interject in their lives because I had my own children to protect. Right. You know, like, yeah, I didn't want their damage to rub off on my kids. You know, I had to protect them. Had to. So I could have interjected for them, too. So I can I try to put myself in other people's perspectives and why they didn't intervene for me. And I'm just grateful it happened the way it did or I wouldn't be who I am today. So I wouldn't. That's a lot of grace for you to give to uh, yeah. people who probably don't deserve it. But I <laughs> hear what you're saying. It's true. I mean, it's the true story. Like I could have done the same. You know, I went through it and you think as a kid, I'd be like, oh, I got to help all these children. But it was my job to help my children. Yeah. You could have been bitter and you're not. So that's that's a testament of who you are as a person. And it's a wonderful view on you know like i i like to say that i don't hang on to shit but i'm like i don't hang on to things and then i'm like fuck jessica from third grade <laughs> i hang on to like the dumbest shit and it's like <laughs> i feel that <laughs> see you come through so much and have like such a good perspective on life and your peace and what's worth your peace and your happiness is a really inspiring thing to hear truly well thank you so much 
No worries. I'm so glad you guys let me get it out. How do you feel about it? I am glad to get it all out. Good. Literally, I have never told anyone this. I've never put it together like that before and organized it in my own head. It's just been like chaos, like jumbling around. So kind of felt good to tidy it up. Made my OCD feel nice and good. check it off the proverbial list and move on. Good. So thank you guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. And it's definitely going to help someone feel less alone, if nothing else. You know, being able to hear maybe something similar and seeing how beautiful something not beautiful can turn out you know exactly i love that that piece of it definitely for sure so thank you so much and i'm so glad we got to just like hang out and talk even if it was about heavy stuff it was good to catch up again i agree yeah totally i just kind of creepily watch your family from afar and admire you and send you positive vibes (laughs) when you're adults it's really it's really hard to to keep those sort of things going and here we have i never think anything about it i'm like we're busy yeah exactly exactly for a long time goodness gracious yeah mm-hmm. that was a beautiful story and thank you so much thank you so so much thank you guys again and thank you so much for listening please send us your stories if you would like to be a guest on our show and share your story we would love to do that with you If you also have something you would like to write in for us to read, we would love to do a segment on listener stories. Even if you don't feel comfortable coming on and talking about it, we can read your story. We would love to hear from you all. We would love to hear about content you'd like to hear, just um, feedback in general. So if you want to shoot us an email, our email address is ngcompod at gmail.com. You can also go to our website at ngcompod.com and fill out the form that's on the contact page. And there's also a lot of resources that we have there too. So uh, please visit our resource page where you can find anything that we've talked about on the show and it just kind of goes deeper into the explanation of certain things that we say like what is narcissism uh what is gaslighting so that is very helpful too if you want to go there and check that out and we do plan to add books that are helpful i would love to add a section to our resource page so if anybody has any recommendations on books that are good to add to our website we already have a list of books that we've mentioned throughout the show and season one. So I plan on doing a compilation of that and adding that to our resource page too. So it's just easier for everyone to go and get that resource. Awesome. Thank you again so much for listening. Until next time. Bye. Thank you for listening. We appreciate it so much. If you want to support our show further, you can share our podcast with your friends. Follow us on our socials at NGCOMPod or sign up for our Patreon to help keep the show going with a donation. Or you can become a patron for exclusive access to bonus content and interact with us and other loyal listeners on our feed. Meanwhile, if you liked what you heard today, please leave us a positive review. If you didn't, no worries. Move on about your day. If you want to share your story on our show, please visit our website at ngcompod.com to fill out the contact us form. Thanks again for listening.